Oh. Oh, youth, please, could you go? <laughs> Sorry. I'm being beckoned. Yeah, Joe's at the back waiting for any youth um, who are uh, wanting to go with her. Thanks. Better? No? Yeah, better, yes. Thank you. I'll start again. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. This is Paul in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked round and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he gives all life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. 
Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Amen. Good morning. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to work through this text verse by verse. It won't take all the way till lunchtime, I promise you. Um, I've not had as long to prepare as I normally would, so I haven't got loads to say. Although, some of you have heard that before, right? I know. Um, We're in this series looking at Acts as we go towards the end of our year of biblical literacy. We're essentially saying, what did the early church do with what they knew? That's the question I think that all of us will face at the end of time when we stand before Jesus. Uh, what did you do with what you knew? How did you live? Did you live out the resurrection life? Did your life embody what it is to be the kingdom of God? Uh, and that's really what we're asking is how did the early church do that? And we come to this passage in Acts, one of my favourite passages in Acts, where we look at how Paul started to bring the gospel to bear in a non-Jewish context, the Greco-Roman world. How did he take the gospel and expand it into the known world? If you know your church history, within 200 to 300 years, the entire Greco-Roman world is turned upside down by the gospel. It's extraordinary. Paul is a genius. He's a master, as we'll see in a moment. And I want to suggest to you that this text gives us some really helpful clues or ways of understanding how you and I can interact with a culture around us today, 2,000 years later, that is not that dissimilar to this context here in Athens. A culture where there are multiple gods, where people believe in all sorts of idols, where our voice, our message is just one of many in the marketplace, but actually one that is, which is mocked and ridiculed more than ever. What does Paul do here that's instructive for us? We'll come to that at the end, but first I want to just show you a few of the things he does. Hopefully as we go you'll be like, ah, I get it. I see what he's doing. So uh, Paul has arrived in Athens on his missionary journey. He's waiting, if you know, at at the chapter before, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. They're kind of like his team. Uh, But while he's waiting for them, because he's an apostle, because he's so committed to seeing the gospel heard and proclaimed and lived out, he gets on with the job while he waits. Verse 16, it says he was deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. Luke is a historian. He's not Mr. Emotional. So when Luke puts in deeply distressed, he really was deeply distressed. This is Paul, deeply distressed. He's in Athens. Now, Athens at the time was like the equivalent today of us putting together Oxford, Cambridge, Hale, uh, Yale, Harvard, and perhaps three or four other big intellectual contexts, intellectual centres. It was the equivalent of all of them put together. It was the cultural intellectual epicentre of the known world. Anything that was thought and believed anywhere else in the Roman Empire uh, came from there. That's where it was contested and contended for. It rippled out. It used to be Great Britain more recently, didn't it? Now we say it's America. As America goes, the world goes, which is why it's terrifying uh, what's going on over there. I shouldn't have said that. Okay. (laughs) 
Not only is it an intellectual center, it was the center for arts and sports. That's where the first Olympics started in Athens, okay? And here is Paul, and he's in Athens, and he's deeply distressed. Why? It says it in the text. The city was full of idols. What's an idol? It's an image, a representation of a god that is worshipped. We idolize things, we worship them. Something other than the one true God that's revealed in Jesus Christ. So they had gods for this, that, and the other, and they had idols for them all. In all of these temples all the way around Athens, there was a famous saying, which was, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Now, we don't have temples in the way that we perhaps understand it. We don't have idols in those temples. But actually, I would suggest we kind of do. So whenever you're in the bull ring uh, in Birmingham, that's a temple where we worship consumerism and the next thing. And I find myself walking past the Apple stop, a shop and I just have to sort of stop and bow and like, <laughs> glory. It's like heaven on earth. It's this pure place. I'm slightly joking, but we idolize that, don't we? We idolize all sorts of things. So it's not a huge amount different. Are you distressed by the state of our culture? I hope so. Verse 17, Paul gets to work. It says he reasoned in the synagogues, that's the first place, where Jews living there would have worshipped, and Greek-fearing Jews. And, and we've heard this before, if you've been tracking through Acts, if you're in the readings, that's we've just about got there uh, in our year of biblical literacy. This was normal for, for Paul. He always started there. He always found the friends, the people that he knew best, because they were slightly easier to get them over the line, because he, he could tell their story, because uh, he's got their story, and then he could help them see Jesus in it. But, but Finding people who are far from God is a bit tougher. So he starts with a synagogue, but notice then it says day by day he's in the marketplace. So he's doing both and. Timothy and Silas haven't even arrived yet. He's cracking on because he's got work to do. And day by day it says he reasoned with people in the marketplace. Now when you think marketplace, you mustn't think um, the market square uh, just outside the bus station uh, where you go and you get your fruit and veg, or if it's the kind of the upmarket one, you get your kind of nice things, you know? It's not a market in that sense. It's the marketplace. In other words, the agora, that's the Greek word for it. It was the cultural center of the city. It's the marketplace, when we talk about the marketplace of ideas. Probably better language today is the public square, which doesn't literally exist anymore. But we still talk about that, don't we? Politicians will talk about engaging in the public square. That's what Paul is doing. The Agora, the marketplace, was a physical space in the city where anything to do with news, finances, politics, the arts, philosophy, that's where it was all discussed and debated. And the Areopagus is this council of people, the city elders, who, who basically were the guardians of all of that, the stewards of all of that. So later on, you'll see Paul's invited to go and speak to the Areopagus. He's in the Agora, and because he's in the Agora, they see him and they say, come and speak to the council. And so it was a normal day-by-day -day reality. Paul would not have been the only one. It wasn't like they were all just doing their thing, and he's like, uh -uh, excuse me, newbie. Got an idea. Can I have 10 minutes? They were all doing that all the time. All the time. In fact, it says later on that that's basically all they did. They just talked about stuff. We have a culture, don't we? We like to talk about stuff. Everyone's got an opinion. Social media, 
Brilliant at its best, terrible at its worst. So here's Paul, and he bravely goes in. Now remember, this is Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, etc., all put together. Here's Paul, the newbie from outside. He's not intimidated by what he hears and sees. Day by day, it says he reasoned with them. He gets stuck in. He goes and joins in and brings the gospel message and adds it to the melting pot. He's totally confident that what you and I believe has the power to change what everyone else believes. He thinks it's worthy of people listening to. He thinks it's got a voice. He thinks it's credible. He's not coming in apologizing for it. If he was doing that, he'd have worked on the sidelines. He'd have subverted. No, he's totally confident in the gospel. So he's in there, right in the thick of it, going, actually, do you know what? I want to add a voice. I want to suggest a different worldview. I want to tell you about my God and what I believe he's like. It's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And most commentators will say the future of the church's mission hinges on Acts chapter 17. If you go on to read what happens, it all flows out of this section. Now, the word reasoned is the word dialogue in Greek, and it's a particular word. It doesn't mean dialogue as in you and I might dialogue, it's a two-way conversation. It's a particular kind of dialogue, a particular kind of reasoning, what's known as the Socratic method from Socrates, or Socrates, as Bill and Ted in their most excellent adventure famously said, that's showing my age. Some of you are going, I've never heard of it, and the rest of you are going, never heard of it, because I'm 40, I'm in the middle. Uh, not preaching. It's not preaching, and it's not arguing, and it's not listening to someone but waiting to interrupt them to tell them why they're wrong, which is the last time I saw a political debate on TV. That's what I saw, right? This is a very um, refined, uh, disciplined way of dialoguing where you would listen, and then you'd ask questions until you really understood what they were saying and why they were saying it, and then graciously would say, Here's where I think you're wrong. Probably that's what we all need if we're married, a bit more Socratic method when we're trying to dispute various things. This is robust cultural intellectual engagement. This is not street preacher. And nor is it modification of the gospels to make it more culturally palatable, as tempting as that is. It's just confidence. I'm nothing to fear here. Because I think I've got a better story. That's essentially what Paul is thinking and modeling. And so Paul, in other words, goes right into the heart of culture, in the heart of the city where culture is set in and determined and influenced and shaped, and brings to bear this idea of Jesus and resurrection. So much so that verse 18, they call him a babbler. And that was an insult. Uh, originally, a babbler was a seed-picking bird. And it became an idiom, a kind of a shorthand for someone who basically had no original ideas themselves, who kind of collected them from everybody else uh, and then spat them out as his own. It was a kind of a lazy way of dialoguing. So in other words, what they're saying is you, they're trying to get rid of him. You're a babbler. You're not really up to this. But he holds his nerve and sticks in there. And bit by bit begins, it seems, to break through. So what we've got here in, in the rest of the text, most theologians will tell you, is a summary of one of the debates he had. 
And the average time you were given, apparently, uh, to make your, uh, your kind of statement was 20 minutes. It takes about two minutes to read this. So this is a summary of what Paul says. Um, and almost certainly, this is a summary of what he said when he's debating with what are known as the Stoics and the Epicureans, which are referenced here in verses uh, 18, 19, and so on. Now, just so you know, a Stoic, people who believed in Stoicism, they're essentially moralists at the time. They believed in absolute morality. They believed that actually with enough philosophy, you could discern what is right and wrong. You can actually discern what is the true structure of the universe, what it is to be human. And they talked about something called logos. Sound familiar? The logos. Logic is from that word. And for them, the way you dealt with life was that you didn't let life get you down. You had to be unperturbed by suffering and opposition and hardship. You had to kind of be courageous and stand up in the face of it, from which we get the phrase stoical, right? Then you've got Epicureans. They're the opposite. They're relativists. They're hedonists. For them, there's no moral absolutes. Anything goes because nothing really matters. So the pursuit of pleasure for your personal satisfaction is what makes you happy, and being happy is the point of life. And so they had a massive thing about sexuality and sexual freedom, particularly, but also food. Uh, not dissimilar to our culture, right? And into all of this comes Paul, who brings a gospel that we'll see in a moment has a lot to say about both of those frames of reference, right? So verse 19, we find that he, he's so persuaded them, or so intrigued them, that he's invited up to the Areopagus. It says, doesn't it, verse 19. Uh, sorry, I've lost it. Uh, they took him and brought him to a meeting. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It's new teaching. Well, they want to know it. He's piqued their interest. Something's going on. They've stopped thinking of him as a babbler. He's begun to earn his credentials. Here he is. They want to hear more. Um, and the context, of course, is that this is a place of learning. So rightly so. They want to hear. He might have something to add. Maybe there's another god that we can put in the Parthenon, the big temple, which was kind of like... So you had all these little temples. You'd have a temple for him and her and him and her. And then all of them had their place in the big temple. There's a similar one in Rome, right? Uh, and... Um, so it's, maybe there's room for another one. Maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe this guy can add to the mix. They don't really understand what they've done by inviting him up. Uh, and his address to them is masterful. We haven't got time to analyze it this morning. You could do an entire teaching series just on what he says. But it is absolutely masterful. I'd encourage you to go and have another read of it. And what he does is he gives them a big God and a good God and a powerful God, and a relational God. In contrast to their gods, who were prickly, and fickle, and angry, and feuding, uber-sensitive, manipulative, playing little games, passive-aggressive, egocentric, which Tim Keller, a theologian, says is basically humanity projected onto these created gods. That's us, right? Hello? Is it lunchtime yet? And Paul says, actually, I want to tell you about a better God than all of those put together. A God not, not to be appeased, 
but a God that's good enough to be adored. And what he does is absolutely brilliant. It's the key to how we engage in our culture. Look at verses 22 to 23. Men of Athens, and it was just men in those days, okay, for all sorts of reasons. I see that in every way you are very religious. The word religious that he uses here could have been interpreted as spiritual, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's true, mate. Or superstitious. Shackles up. So he's kind of like, he's hedging his bets. I see you're very religious, so some, some will be offended, some won't be, but he's making his point, basically. And he says, uh, uh, um, he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what I love about this is basically someone at some point has gone, we better do some due diligence here. <laughs> like, what if... What if actually there is a God over it all? Right, so, that, so someone somewhere has kind of hedged his bets. I love it, right? And Paul uses that reference point to tell them about Jesus. It's extraordinary. And basically what he says is, this is a sign to me that actually deep down in your cultural psyche, you probably do believe that there actually is a God who's good. That all of these others are just an attempts to get to you don't know who it is. You don't know him. You, ha- you can't identify him. You can't describe him. But I'm going to. I'm going to reveal that God to you today. It's real gutsy, right? Really brave. So verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. This is the big God. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. He's powerful. And actually, he's self-sufficient. All their gods needed something from humans to be appeased, to make them gods. This god doesn't. He's sovereign. He created everything. He doesn't need anything from you. That's news. That's a new idea. That's revolutionary. And verse 26, notice this. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Their gods were unpredictable. This God has the whole of history in his hands. And I think there would have been a moment where they began to settle down and really listen. Because for the first time, someone was speaking not to their head, but to their heart. Maybe. Maybe. Whichever dude put the God to the, the, the idol to the unknown God, maybe he was right after all. Now, interestingly, notice verse 27. Not only is Paul talking about a God who's powerful and good and sovereign and relational, but verse 27, he's talking about a God that's imminent and intimate. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, revolutionary. Not only is this a God who can be known, this is a God, says Paul, who wants to be known and wants to know you. Did you know that? Jesus wants to know you. Not us on our own, but you too. 
He knows you by name. He knows the details of your life. He knows what you brought in this morning. He knows what you're going back to. And Paul would say, he's the God who's good and powerful and bigger than anything else in the whole of the created world, anything else. He wants to know you, and he wants you to know him and his power made perfect in your weakness. I'm off my notes. I need to keep going. And so then notice verse 28. He kind of makes his case by quoting their own writers. Now remember, this is a culture that doesn't believe what Paul believes, except maybe they do, really, because there's this idol to an unknown God. And then here he is quoting their own writers. For in him we live and move and have our being. We hear that as scripture, but actually that was someone who wrote it, a Greek philosopher, we don't know who it was, but it was in their texts. And I notice out there else, we are his offspring. One of their poets said it. We are his offspring, we're his children. And Paul's like, you see? You do get it. You just don't know him, and I'm here to reveal him to you. I'm not here to prove that I'm right. I'm here to help you meet the God that in your hearts you've been looking for all this time. Can, can, I, can I introduce you? <laughs> and I love this. Paul doesn't even get to finish his talk. He gets interrupted. Notice verse 32. He talks about the resurrection and it says that some begin to sneer. Because at this point, he's introduced a new way of dialoguing. He's done something that's unorthodox. And so it's all going quite well, probably, relatively. But at this point, he talks about a fact. He says in verse 31, the proof of what I'm saying is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At which point, the wise, learned philosopher would say, this is not how we debate. Because we can't prove anything. And if you start saying you can prove something, then we lose all our social power. What's fascinating, this is an aside, but the voices speaking most powerfully into our cultural context at the moment are naysayers about Christianity. And they'll say, you can't prove that you're right, which we would dispute with. <laughs> but they can't prove anything. They're relying on cultural ignorance to get away with it. Politics isn't a huge amount different, I don't think, right now. Lots of us find that we're not sure what the facts are. There's just a lot of talk, right? So at this point, Paul is suddenly probably feeling a bit like, oof, this is the moment. Because the proof, he says, is the resurrection. At which point, the meeting's over. Some believe. But only first having spent more time with him, actually, this is a whole other talk, but it doesn't say they believed and then joined him. It says they joined him and then believed. Often people believe after first belonging. It's true of some of you here. You belong here, but you wouldn't necessarily say you believe yet. You're so welcome. That's actually how it works. Paul has offended and upset the Areopagus. He's dropped a bomb. He's blown everything apart. Because he said, that God that you look for, that you long for, has revealed himself in Jesus, and he's proved himself to be the God I'm telling you about. And at that point, they don't know what to do. So they stop the meeting. Paul's fine, because he's blown apart 
their worldview. And it's just a matter of time now for it all to come good. So, what does all of this teach us about how we can engage with our culture? Three things. Because we only ever have three things in a sermon. Uh, Actually, it's six, but I've grouped them together to make it three. (laughs) The first thing we have to do, because Paul did this, is we have to meet people where they're at. We've got to meet the culture where it's at. We, we cannot any longer, as Christians, observe culture, critique it from afar, lob in judgment bombs, speak to it and tell it to change, which I've never bought into, but you know, we've inherited some of that wisdom. We, we have to meet it where it's at. We have to go to it. And not go to it from here and then come back here, but incarnate ourselves in it, live in it. This is where we live. We're temporarily resident here on earth. We're pilgrims, we write our address in pencil. But we have to make it home for as long as it's home. We have to love our neighbors, like literally your neighbors. Do you know their names? (laughs) And we have to engage with it. We have to dialogue. We have to get into the conversation. And so that happens on two levels. The church needs to be in the agora, the marketplace in our 21st century, and it's better now than it has been at doing that. Justin Welby, I think, is extraordinary at it. But you and I need to find our own agoras. Where do you get to dialogue? It's your workplace, it's your street, it's your family, it's wherever you have influence, that's your agora. People often try to say to me, it's like, so what kind of church are you? What kind of leader are you? What kind of, put some labels on it. And I'm like, okay, if we're going to push it, I'm an evangelical and I'm a charismatic. I'm a char- and an Anglican, and in no particular order. They all come together as far as I'm concerned. Happily Anglican, convinced charismatic, joyful evangelical. But I always put um, a slight caveat on the evangelical word, because it's a loaded statement in our culture, isn't it? By evangelical, I simply mean I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's spoken in the creeds inherited by the church. I don't think it's the message is up for grabs. I think the methodology is, but I don't think the message is. But I'm open evangelical as opposed to conservative evangelical. Why? Because I think we should be dialoguing with culture. I think culture's marvellous. I think there are some incredible things about the world we live in. I was making coffee this morning for some friends, or actually with some friends, in an aeropress. The best way to make coffee, someone invented the aeropress. Not a Christian, I think it's a gift from God. Same guy that made the aerobee um, frisbee. And with all the money and nothing, nothing to do with his time, he made this aeropress. It's the best way to drink coffee. It's extraordinary. I'm all about it. But do I think culture's perfect? No. Do I think it's dysfunctional? Yes. Do I think it's longing for the unknown God that it builds idols to all over the place? Yes. Is it my job to help them see that and reveal him to them? Yes. As it is yours. So that's the first slash second thing. The second slash, I don't know, anyway, you get my point. Uh, We need to extend grace to our culture. We need to become a church. Better, we're getting better, but not there yet. And I mean collectively, not just this church. Christians need to be known for that which they're for and not which we're against. Because we are against certain things for good reasons. But we need to be known what we're for, what we're for 
not what we're against. And we do that by extending grace. Mission is joining in with what God is already doing. It's serving it. We've got to look and see where God is at work in people and in places and in problems and join in and add love and extend grace and serve it and live with the mess of it. Sometimes we wish it was better. Sometimes we wish it was our way. But sometimes we're better off when it's not our way, frankly, because sometimes the culture is better at things than we are. We need to affirm what is good. We need to find the common ground. We need to name things for what they really are and reframe it. We need to find our culture's altar to the unknown gods and say, ah, I think that's a sign to me, to us, that what you're really looking for is Yahweh, is the Father revealed in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some concrete examples. Did anyone watch the One Manchester concert that Ariana Grande put on? Okay, if you've not seen it, your homework is to go and watch it. It's still on iPlayer. Kath and I wept through that. It was beautiful. Was it Christian? No. Was it worship? Yes. So you've got Robbie Williams leading worship effectively. We're still singing our songs. You've got Justin Bieber, who's become a believer. He's a Christian, preaching. You've got Katy Perry leading prayers effectively. It's extraordinary. If you don't know who I'm talking about, go watch it. Millions of people watched it that night. They went to church as best as they know it in a cultural vacuum. And I think we need to be able to say that, 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 that instinct in you to come together, to reach out, that the message they preached that night was what we talk about. Frankly, they just did a better job of it than we do. The difference is, of course, there's no power in it. And so it's just a moment in culture. It didn't transform it. Another example, I'm running out of time, is the way the church responded to the Grenfell Tower disaster, tragedy, whatever language you put on it, atrocity, which is probably what it is. So a friend of mine is the vicar of the parish in which that tower uh, is, and it won't be there for a huge amount longer, and uh, he saw the fire. And so at three o'clock in the morning, he rang around everyone in their church and said, we're going to open the church up. There's a brilliant article, I haven't got time to quote it, on the Guardian website about the way the church responded. The church got it right that night and that week, and the government had no idea what to do. Why? Because you can't legislate for compassion. It just met the culture where it's at. It met people where it's at. But what, of course, happened is everyone joined in. Because people want to do that. They just don't know how to collectively. They all do it individually in their own ways. Finally, we need to tell a better story. We need to reveal a better God. We're rubbish at telling our story. We've got the best story. We're just rubbish at telling it. We've got a better God. We've got a God that answers every question our culture is asking. You know, one of the reasons why what Paul said took root is that uh, the Stoics couldn't give people an answer to suffering. It's really hard to just keep going when your life sucks. And he said, no, no, you don't have to, you see, because there's a God who suffered for you. And he'll redeem you through this. All suffering, he'll ultimately make good. And there's hope of a life beyond this one where there's no more suffering. 
It's good news to people, so they bought in. He had an answer to what the Epicureans said, because I don't know whether you've noticed, but the unbridled pursuit of personal pleasure leads to loneliness. And they created community in which the lonely were included. And the Epicureans had no answer to that. What are the questions our culture's asking? What are its needs that aren't being met by the philosophies of the day? Have you noticed that every time you buy something new, you feel good for about 10 minutes, but then next week there's something new to buy? My sister-in-law works for ASOS. She's a fashion designer. They work on five-week fashion cycles. Primark. It's just, it's a drug, it's addictive. It doesn't answer the question. What are the questions our culture's asking? Uh, but we've got to tell a better story, not just with our words, but with our lives. The reason why it worked for the early church was they had people like Paul proclaiming it, and then you had ordinary people living it. People want to know it's good news by the way we love one another. We cannot just put a better idea out there. We have to prove that it works. How do we prove it works? By living in the one who proves it and in his power, which is why we go on and on and on about how you cannot follow Jesus and not have an active engagement with the Holy Spirit because you can't do it on your own. But when we do those two things, and remember, we don't modify the message to make it more palatable. We just change the methodology to make it resonate and connect. We have the power to transform our culture. And I want to say to you, I think what Paul would say is, don't be afraid of the marketplace. Have confidence that the story that you live out is, is good enough to contend for people's attention in the marketplace. It really is. But we have to prove it. There's one more thing that's key to this. Because I've given you three things, and I'm sure you'll go, yeah, 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 yeah. But we mustn't miss one of the reasons why Paul was so able to do this. Verse 16, where we began. Paul was deeply distressed. If you and I are not deeply distressed, if we're not feeling the pain of our culture, if we don't look out and have a compassionate response, then we have not spent enough time with God. Because when you spend enough time with God, he shows you the things he sees. He tells you about the things that matter to him. And he points you in the right direction. He says, now get, up, get on with it. In my name and in my power. That's how it works. You want compassion for the world? Spend time with God. It's dead easy. <laughs> okay, it's not complicated. Paul dives in. Not just because he's convinced that he's got a better intellectual idea. He dives in because he knows that the one who proved himself in his resurrection is the one that went into the idolatry of the human uh, race, into the hearts of each one of us, because he was deeply distressed for us. And he put into us the very thing that Paul proclaims. Paul's motivated not just by intellectual conviction, but by personal experience of Jesus. Paul was no different a long time ago to one of those Greek philosophers, but something happened in his heart. What? Jesus. And that's the unique contribution that you and I make. Heart and mind. Whole of our beings. We look at the world and we don't run from it. We don't judge it. We deep dive in. Why? Because the God that's in us moves towards suffering 
moves towards confusion, moves towards loneliness, moves towards pain, and he does it in and through his people. And he says, now, but be confident, because he who's great in you is greater than that which is in the world. Let it out. Let it out. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Some of you need to collect your children or get someone else to collect your children if you know you need to respond to God this morning. We're slightly over time, for which I apologise, but I don't want you to miss a moment with God, okay? There's three things in a moment I particularly want us to pray for, but we'll pray for anybody for anything in the power of the Spirit because that's how we believe it works or one of the ways it works. I think some of you, as I've spoken, your heart is pounding because you're an evangelist or you're motivated with a passion for the world. You're, you, want, you feel called to do the work of an evangelist. Okay? You don't do it for us. You help us do it. But if you're an evangelist, come on out. Just come up to the front. We want to pray for you. Well done, Abby. You may never have called yourself an evangelist, but you've just realized, that's what I want to do. Yes, that's me. I want to go into the Agora. Some of you, I think, if I'm honest, uh, because it's me today in this category, you want to know the God that I've just been talking about. Maybe because you've never met him properly for the first time, or maybe because, like me, sometimes the reality of following Jesus, sometimes you can lose sight of Jesus, right? Particularly in this whole business of trying to be the church. But maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, that's the first time the penny's dropped and I'd like to become a Christian. In which case, come on out. So just come, if either of those two things are true for you. The third thing then is that there are some of you who, as difficult as this might be, you know that uh, you're living in fear. And what Ivana shared earlier is really important because this, uh, we believe in a God that sets people free from fear. Uh, do not be afraid. It appears 365 times in the Bible. Did you know that? One for every day. Don't know what you do about a leap year. So if you're in fear this morning, come on out. Just come out. You don't have to say what it is. Every one of us is in fear at some point for something. I was praying this morning for us, and I really felt God spoke to me about intimidation. I think some of us have been intimidated either in an overtly spiritual way or just by others or by culture or by realities or by facts of our lives. But actually God would say to you, don't be intimidated because he who's in you is greater than that which is around you. And there's a season, this is a call for fresh faith and courage, but you don't walk it on your own. It's community. Okay. Come Holy Spirit. Pour yourself out upon us. Now, whether or not you've come to the front, here's what I'd love you to do. I'd love you just for a moment, before the children return, is just, if you can, if you're up for this, is just say, come fill me, Holy Spirit. I find it helpful to put my hands open, to close my eyes, and in the quiet of my heart, say, yeah, fill me with your life, God. Fill me with your power. Spirit of God, would you minister to each and every one of us in this room?
wherever we're stood, whatever we're standing for. Give us such confidence in you, Lord, and such compassion from you. Now, if you're on the ministry team and you're not already here, come on out and start to pray for people. You'll need to pray, move on. If you're on the staff or a small group leader, come and do that as well. That would be great. Keep receiving. Don't, you don't need someone to pray with you for God to minister to you. It does help sometimes, but you don't need that.